So say hello to everyone and thank you for meeting with us again. Um, hi, this is Dr. Hornby. Thanks for um, having me on the, the Stroke SIG uh, podcast. I'm happy to do one. This is the Stroke Special Interest Group's second podcast about locomotor training. The first podcast, which you can listen to on Synapse, summarized the findings of the CPG to improve locomotor function following chronic stroke, incomplete spinal cord injury, and brain injury with Dr. Hornby. There has been a lot of interest in this topic of increasing intensity as a tool for improving walking for people with focal injuries of a chronic nature. What I hope to accomplish today is a dive into the CPG so that clinicians can understand the richness and depth of the data in it. If clinician only reads the summary statements without delving into the meaning, there may be some misunderstanding of the data. I would like to start by reminding listeners of the goal of the CPG, because this is, the really, this is really the key component of the literature review that was performed. The CPG is focused on a goal that we often have for our patients with chronic stroke, improving walking speed and distance for our patients. This topic is a great one since clinicians now are really questioning what interventions are most effective and efficient in improving speed and distance for our patients. So thank you for your work. Can you start off by elaborating on how this specific question was identified to merit a CPG? Thanks for the opportunity. Um, so as you may know, most clinical practice guidelines take a diagnosis and say, okay, if you want to get, you want improved recovery after stroke, here are the things that you do. And therefore, a lot of different disciplines, uh, speech, OT, pharmacology, those types of things. And that, those are really valuable. And there's a large pool of experts that work on those CBGs. Sometimes what I think we want is to identify if this is the task that you want, what are all the things that are going to improve this task? And so the task of walking was probably the most salient for all patients and their families post-stroke, and it's so important for other things. So we really want to say, forget all the other stuff. Let's just focus on walking. What gets someone with a stroke to walk better? So that's how that was actually derived. Um, and then walking is, is, is so important for health and participation and mobility and you know, return to work and, and all these things. So that was an easy choice to actually do that. Okay, so it was kind of just a decision made by you and your colleagues, like this is, as per your clinical experience, the most important, so it's something that people should be looking into. We well, it's not just, it's not clinical experience, um, but it, it is that, but it's also all these, all these manuscripts that say that walking is this important. There's a, um, there's a walking paper, paper about um, a walking as the fifth vital or sixth vital sign, the work by Stephanie Studensky, who's at NIH now, says that walking predicts 1,500 things, and one thing that's interestingly, it predicts death. So basically, how old you are and how fast you walk, you can predict uh, mortality and the age of mortality. So that's pretty powerful. Absolutely. That's definitely really relevant. Can you next clarify the scope in terms of population and outcomes that was chosen for the CPG? Sure. So... When we uh, started, the, the patient population was going to be important, and and because we were focusing more on a task, we felt that a few different populations might actually uh, fit into one CPG. And, and what we chose were the acute onset neurological injury diagnoses. So that's going to be stroke, spinal cord injury, and TBI. And those are the major groups that we tend to see in inpatient rehabilitation. 
Um, and, and then obviously a large outpatient rehabilitation as well. We lumping them together is was met with some resistance by some people, but others often um, like this idea. And, and the rationale for doing it was they're all uh, non-progressive damage to supraspinal or spinal pathways. And so they're all this classic upper motor neuron disorders. All these disorders have weakness and coordination deficits as, as primary impairments, but they also present with spasticity and spastic hypertonia. We recognize that there are some differences between these groups, but those similarities are, are really um, pretty stunning. The other aspect is that the theory that neuroplasticity actually has the same mechanism regardless of where you have the injury was stated by Bruce Dobkin in an article in 2008 where you have changes in function where neuroplastic uh, events are underlying those changes. They're probably similar mechanisms in all three diagnoses rather than very discrete mechanisms of learning in different injuries. And then if you assume that the cardiovascular system is relatively intact and the muscular system is intact. Well, because there's not damage to those structures, the plasticity in those structures should be very similar. And all three of those or four systems contribute to motor recovery following injury. So we wanted to, to lump those together based on that rationale. And in the manuscript, you'll actually see that there are a lot of studies that lump these groups together already. A lot of publications out there that's, that's already been done. Um, the other aspect, so we got the diagnoses, then we have chronicity. And the chronicity was chosen to be chronic, which we defined as more than six months. And chronic was explicitly six months, primarily because we wanted to see what the effects of an intervention were. And as most are aware, most of the spontaneous uh, healing or spontaneous recovery occurs in the first six months. And if you give an intervention during that period, the changes are reflective of both that spontaneous recovery and the intervention and whatever combined effects. And that's fantastic, but sometimes studies may be uh, shown to be not different in one intervention versus another because there's so much variability in recovery. By waiting till six months, we wanted to limit that variability with natural recovery so we could see the effects of the intervention. The problem with that is that um, there's a lot of people who are treated earlier versus later following neurological recovery. So we recognize that. But again, the mechanisms of plasticity are probably similar early versus late, and, and probably more mechanisms of plasticity earlier, which is great, but just not, uh, not an issue that we wanted to address. We could have gotten a large number of articles that were so variable in their outcomes that the argument would, would, be, would be, do anything, anything works. That's what some people have said, and that actually may be true still, but we wanted to make it a little more pure to what the intervention does. The last thing, by sticking to chronic, and these were decisions that kind of dominoed each other. Late post-injury, if I have a patient with stroke, for example, the probability of getting them up and walking after non-walking for a long period of time isn't great. You know, they're probably already walking at that point. So 90, 80 to 90% of people with stroke walk. What we, what we defaulted to is like, well, if most people walk post-stroke, we should probably use walking speed and distance as the primary measures. And the use of walking independence is variable oftentimes um, as far as its validity and reliability. 
So we, we landed on walking speed and distance, knowing full well that subacute, non-ambulatory patients who actually get the most therapy, um, we would be excluding them from the, the process. So that's how we landed on that. I will say there is a subacute locomotion group that's following us, that's active right now, trying to tackle that. I know that the CPG for outcome measures for people with neurological injuries use the 10, were suggested 10 meter walk test and six minute walk test. Did that come into it at all, or logically it just made sense to use it? Well, I, one, it was logical. Two, I had an inside track into that outcomes of what they were going to actually recommend. So, But we didn't actually use just 10-meter walk and 6-minute walk. It was really any measure of walking speed. So there's a 3-meter, there's sometimes a 6-meter. And then 6-minute walk, there's a 2-minute walk and a 12-minute walk. So we used any of those as necessary, um, just some standardized measure of speed and or distance. Can you next explain how the literature search occurs and specifically touch on how interventions were picked and considered? The search was a little tricky for diagnoses. So there are a lot of terms for stroke, for example, cerebral vascular accident, TIA. All these things were entered, and the librarian was very skilled at that. Um, so the, the diagnosis had their separate searches that we had to grind through. But as you alluded to, the interventions had a trickier search because people would call what they did a lot of different names. We used treadmill, for example, or um, treadmill is a good one because the treadmill actually is used in a lot of studies, but what you actually do with the treadmill is very different across studies. So we used bodyweight support treadmill training, locomotor training, aerobic training, robotic-assisted training, robotic treadmill training. There's all these permutations that we had to actually consider. Having some of us as researchers in the field who know what these terms are, we could see what articles were coming up and if we potentially missed something or not. In the end, though, uh, we end up just globally doing exercise, exercise and other types of exercise-related terms. So we, we tried not to miss anything. I'm, I'm certain we did. I was hoping we didn't, but I, mean, I know there's something out there that we just missed, but our librarian did all searches on the four major search databases uh, to try to find everything that we could. Can you also talk about the survey to the physical therapists that, was, that were given? to pick the interventions? Yeah, so the... You talked about specifically in the CPG later on after the survey. So one of our colleagues uh, submitted a survey and the results of that survey survey are posted, are, are actually in the article. And it was, gave selections of what are your strategies for uh, improving walking. And so for example, Overground walking was chosen by 91% of participants as uh, something that they did. And then the other ones we had selected as, as pre, they were pre-selected as choices. Balance was the next one at 64%. Train, treadmill was 40%. And then strengthening, neurofacilitation, and we gave definitions for these. Tai Chi, circuit training, robotic assisted, FES, uh, and vibration platform. And there were, there were write-in choices. There were things that we ended up selecting as a action item, a action statement, that didn't show up here, like virtual reality. We didn't expect that many actual research studies. But you do the searches, you find everything you have, and then the 
you have a plan and then it goes awry and you have to redo your plan essentially as it turns out. So we recategorize things. And then if you see like um, Tai Chi, well Tai Chi is just kind of weight shifting and that's kind of a balanced pre-gate thing. And sometimes they were sitting balanced things and sometimes they were standing balanced things and sometimes their eyes were closed or they're on a foam and sometimes they're on a vibrating platform. So we subdivided these categories based on how the literature was coming out. Okay, so these different interventions were then later subcategorized into like for Tai Chi if it was that would be more into the balance statement. Yeah. It's it's not what you call it, it's what you actually do, right? Got it. That makes sense. After the literature search occurs, the articles are appraised. Can you explain this process and the scoring system for the articles in terms of how the level of evidence of the different studies were identified? Sure. So uh, we use an appraisal tool that's described in the study. It was um, called the CAT-EI, and the critical appraisal tool was CAT, and then EI is experimental interventions. It was developed uh, jointly through the APTA and uh, Sandra Kaplan at Rutgers University. And that has three sections, and part there's, there's an A part, B part, and C part, and, and the only part that's really important is the B part, which is research design methods and outcomes. And so that part is actually scored, and the top, there's 20 questions, and your top score is 20 points. And so you give uh, different points for different questions. For example, were the subjects randomized? Was the randomization uh, concealed? Were the outcomes blinded? Were the therapists blinded? Uh, were the assessors blinded? Um, did they report the mean and some measure of variability of your outcomes? Did they report change scores and how variable that was? Those types of questions were uh, given a point whether they did or didn't. And we tallied those scores up. And so we used randomized clinical trials only. So that gave us kind of a, a higher level evidence, but then for each randomized clinical trial, we selected, scored every article that was appropriate. We had these sum of scores or cum cumulative scores that we can see the relative weight or strength of an argument for using one intervention or another. That makes sense. So that's all about the quality of how the study was done. Yeah, from a research methodological perspective. Okay. And so actually, can I, I can elaborate. We, we don't actually, care, we didn't care too much about what the discussion said. You know, that's just people elaborating and providing their interpretation and or opinion. And oftentimes you can spin a story some one way or another. Those arguments aren't pertinent. It's really what did the research actually show? You know, was it good research and was there an actual difference between the interventions that they chose? And it's important that we know that if there's good results, that the study, the methodology, the methodology of the study was high quality. Yeah, but but some are not great quality, and they scored lower. But they we still took it as a study. Okay. And so they were actually ranked at different levels. So an RCT is a higher level of evidence generally, but there is a certain level. It's it's in one of the tables. RCTs are basically a good RCT is a level one the highest level evidence, and an okay RCT is a level two. And so we decided, you know, the, the top scoring articles based on this CAT-EI would be a level one. And if they didn't do so hot, or less than half the available points, we gave it a level two. 
Got it. And that's told in the action statement specifically. That's told in the action statement, and that informs what recommendation. So if it's a lot of level ones, we say, okay, this is a strong recommendation. We're pretty sure this is the right answer. Mm -hmm. Or if it's a lot of level twos, uh, we're it's kind of iffy. We're still making this recommendation, but it's moderate. The CPG also focused on benefit and harm. How does that play a role in the formation of the recommendations, and why was that chosen? Also, can we touch upon what degree of certainty means and what that means specifically and how that informs the reader? Right. So in uh, one of the tables, those who actually would pick it up, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find the specific tables here. In our table two, let me back up, recommendations and, and harm or costs. Um, if there's a benefit, we would say that the majority of articles, the large majority, are going to say that this is really valuable compared to something else. And that's, that's how we decided that. So basically, if it looks like it works better than something else or not. The other part, though, is the harm. And harm costs were not really figured in other than we, we simply mentioned them. And the rationale here was it takes time to go to therapy. It costs money. You have to drive there. It's a pain to do these things, and all these costs are important. Then there's a, a cost of an individual intervention, which we actually didn't consider, but people think, which actually isn't true, people think there's a higher risk for high-intensity training. Well, there actually doesn't appear to be, but that's a, that's a risk that, that therapists perceive. There's a cost of doing robotic training because these devices are so large and so bulky, and it takes a lot of time to get someone in a robot and get someone out a robot. So how much therapy do you actually have? Those are things that we address. But the, the really key thing is, if there was something else, if you decided to do a, an intervention that didn't have a lot of evidence, and there was something else that was available that had been shown fairly consistently to have evidence, and your goal was to walk in, why would you do something else. You are, that is a harm because they're taking all this time and energy and effort to get to your clinic and you're giving them something suboptimal. So th those are the wordings we did, we had. The decisions for recommendations were mostly based on the relative benefit. And that last part though, the relative benefit, if you had a randomized trial where you compared an intervention to something else that's actually some kind of therapy that you could actually expect walking to improve, then that was considered, okay, that's a really good indicator that there is a difference between them. A lot of randomized trials will compare an intervention, experimental intervention, to nothing, or a control group that's like arm therapy or cognitive training or watching National Geographic things on a screen, which there's no chance, realistically, that that should improve walking. Now, there may be a testing effect of just testing them, and that may change their walking outcomes, but that's not really a choice that we can give. So if there was a difference, well, great, exercise works, but that gave a little bit less strength and, and, and assurance to us that that intervention was really worth it. And then there were the studies that were no better than nothing or something else, or actually were worse, and those were given no real recommendation or a poor recommendation. And this was, and that's all based on the degree of certainty. The language for giving a recommendation is pretty vague. So in one of our tables, we talk about um, giving a strong 
versus a moderate versus weak recommendation. And basically, a strong recommendation or moderate is based on how many good quality articles are there. But they both said, you know, if you are more than two-thirds of the studies are saying this is actually useful, then we're going to give you a, a strong recommendation. You should do this. Or if the, the research quality isn't great, we'll give you a moderate recommendation, saying moderately you should do this. If the data was iffy, that it was about a third to two-thirds, we're saying that, you know, that's not we're not sure if this art, this intervention is better than anything else. We gave it a weak recommendation. So like strength training was a weak recommendation. If you're less than a third of the studies show that this is valuable as compared to something else, then actually a strong recommendation, it's a strong recommendation to not do something. And that, that type of statement, say don't do that, isn't too common in CPGs, but that's where the data kind of was taking us. You know, these things don't work compared to all the costs you have to deal with to getting a therapy, and there's something else available. So don't do this. And again, two-thirds of the articles basically said it's not any better than anything else, or one-third said it was okay. Got it. That, that's, I think it's definitely helpful for clinicians to weed out what is effective and what isn't effective for patients. Yep. Next, I want to walk through one of the action summary statements. So let's look at action statement three on strength training, like you mentioned. The action mm -hmm. statement reads as follows. Clinicians may consider providing strength training to improve walking speed and distance in individuals greater than six months following acute onset CNS injury, as compared with alternative interventions. The evidence quality is one to two and weak for individuals with stroke and incomplete spinal cord injury. Can you clarify what this means in terms of quality of the evidence and strength of recommendation? Sure. So, so most of the articles that were included are level one. And level one means that they scored sort of high on the CAT-EI tool. So probably above half of the total points of 20. So 10 or above. Okay? So most are level one. There are some level twos. Right? And then we went in and said, okay, what is the actual findings? And so in the strength recommendation, there were nine articles that actually were utilized. A tenth one compared strength to strength, so that didn't really count. Um, but of those nine articles, they had to have walking speed or distance as an outcome. They had to be more than six months. It had to be a randomized trial, all those things. There were subgroups of those. So three articles was strengthening versus no exercise. And in those studies, two of the three said there was no difference between nothing when it came to improving walking speed. So that's two of three that said that that's not very, very, very valuable. Then there was another one that was strength versus minimal exercise. So comparing arm or stretching or uh, range of motion in some arm exercises combined. And in that case, two of three actually showed it wasn't very valuable either. And then there was strength versus other exercise. And in that case, two showed value and one didn't show any value. And so you had four of nine articles that basically said it might be invaluable, whereas five of nine saying it didn't seem like it did what we thought it would do. That's about half. And about half, we're not sure. We were giving a weak recommendation. So that's where that came to, about half of the articles. And there was a point total, but I won't get into that. Um, there was about half the articles, and that's how we decided on strength being that. And it, when we did the 
when they did the CPG, or the first evidence table, and this was the first one, we threw this up on a dry erase board, and we're looking at this, and like, we, this is really iffy. We're not sure, and it just kind of was decided for us at that point that that seemed like the reasonable way to go. And that, that was not expected at all. I honestly came in thinking strength was going to do it, and it just wasn't. Interesting. So our takeaway from that is that the strength training in terms of intervention isn't necessarily weak, but the evidence is inconsistent. The evidence is inconsistent. So it's tough to give a, a, a good recommendation that you should do this. That's understandable. And, it's, and it also is taking into account the RCT's control group. So was the comparison a reasonable intervention? To yeah, yeah, in this case. But it didn't actually really matter because some of these groups were no better than nothing, right? So if you, if you go to circuit training, circuit training had a lot of studies that were positive, but it was almost always compared to nothing okay. or some control group that would not reasonably be expected to improve walking. The one that did compare a high-intensity versus a low-intensity circuit training actually found no differences between groups. So that was also a weak recommendation. I'm not really sure. You know, this is not better than anything else, or not better than nothing, or, or, or it is better than nothing, but wait, that's not a choice we have. Mm -hmm. If you gave therapy and you gave nothing, well, you'd be out of a job probably pretty quick. <laughs> so let's summarize another one. Action statement one. This is a hot topic right now. Moderate to high-intensity walking training following acute CNS injury. A preponderance of evidence for individuals post-stroke, limited, limited in incomplete spinal cord injury and no evidence in traumatic brain injury, suggests clinicians should use moderate to high intensity walking training to improve walking speed and distance in individuals greater than six months following acute onset CNS injury as compared with alternative interventions. The level of evidence was one to two and the strength of recommendation was strong for individuals stroke. So can you talk about what is alternative interventions and can you talk us through the level of evidence and strength of recommendations specifically for this one in terms of number of RCTs present and the scores? Sure. So there were 10 articles here, and they were all actually really good quality articles. So it was actually technically all level ones. Um, five of them were high intensity versus stretching, passive exercise, or nothing. And four of those had some positive benefits. And so those got different points based on uh, what they they were rated differently. There was um, it wasn't just stretching and passive exercise. I apologize. There were a couple of articles that did lower intensity uh, heart rate reserve walking on a treadmill. There was usual care therapy compared against, but some were light massage and passive stretch, which realistically isn't going to do much. But you had four articles that were positive, and those got different point systems based on the outcomes and the control group. And then you had five-hour articles with, that compared higher versus lower intensity walking. And four of those actually showed a positive effect of high intensity. So because they were compared against something that you reasonably could expect to be to improve walking, those were we had more confidence in those. If you lump it all together you get about 80% of the articles that show that there is a benefit. And some of them are compared to nothing, and some, but most of them are compared to something else. That's, that's pretty consistent findings that you know, high-intensity exercise does something. 
And so that was also, when you put it on the dry erase board, it comes out as a no-brainer. And that's why it was a strong recommendation. Yeah. A great section is the role of patient preference. What does that mean, and how can a clinician use that? So this is, this is a great question. It comes up a lot where patients' values and expectations are actually part of the triad of evidence-based practice. So they, they really do need to be considered. And a good example where patient preference is utilized or, or thought of a lot is with high-intensity exercise. And oftentimes what you'll have is patients who really don't like to work out hard. You know, they, they've possibly had a stroke or some other injury because they're not used to working out and they're not as healthy. And it's really hard as a stroke survivor, a spinal cord in injury survivor, to really put that much effort into something when it's, you really can't move well. Um, so that is certainly a preference that's in the literature that's pretty consistently described. And there's not a, not a lot of articles. But as we talked about in the beginning, the primary preference that people want after this injury is I want to walk. That is the number one thing people say. So you've got to talk to your patient and say, okay, if you want to walk or you want to walk better, this is what it will take. It takes a lot of effort and working pretty hard. Now, if you're not willing to do that, if you don't want to do that, that's okay. You may not have, we can do something else, but you may not have as good or as consistent of outcomes. So that patient preference of goal, I want to walk, we, we oftentimes don't talk about, that's probably the most important thing, and, and giving them the option of these are the choices. What would you want to do? And early on, post-injury, the number one thing that people say is I want to walk, and, and I think it's good to give them the opportunity. And the highly recommended interventions are the ones that are going to give them that opportunity from what it looks like. That makes sense. So even though that conversation I'm sure can be difficult, it seems like it can be pretty effective in somebody's outcomes. Right. So that's one way we, we try this going. If, 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 if someone's resistant to doing it, we lay this out for them in the clinical setting as kind of an implementation strategy if they're resistant to doing it. That makes sense. Next, can you discuss why there are sections on quality improvement and implement, implementation and audit? What do those mean specifically? So I think the implementation and audit is really the important thing because one thing that therapists do is like, okay, I'm, they're recommending this. I don't know how to do this. I have no idea. Maybe I was never taught this in school, which is certainly true even to this day. Um, older therapists tend to not have that education of the importance of high-intensity training. There's an equipment issue. There's an organizational issue. There's a kind of a traditional or historical view, like, well, this, that's not what we do here, and this, this is what you should do. And so um, you take a young therapist who goes to a CSM presentation, they go back to their clinic, and they start running people around. Everyone's looking at them like they're crazy. Um, so there, there needs to be better strategies from an organizational standpoint, ANPT, and locally at local clinics to get this going. And what, what the Knowledge Translation Task Force for the Chronic Locomotion CPG has done as organized tools and instruments that are available on online that clinicians can actually utilize. So recommendations for 
a heart rate monitor. If you want to do high intensity training, you have to measure heart rate because one, you'd just be unsafe doing it and you should probably measure vitals anyways because they've had an injury. Giving them heart rate charts. You know, here's our age, here's how, here's our maximum heart rate and here's the percentage that you want to reach. Those are laminated. You can laminate those and are available online. You, there's RPE charts that you can utilize. You know, there are different organizations that the KT task force have paired with to generate these products, which are valuable. Importantly, though, you got to get the organization on board. And if you get the administrators and, and can try to convince them that this is important and the data should, should help you with that, then you talk to them about, okay, how can I get this equipment? How can we, how can we get this, this small piece of equipment just run people around? And we're not talking about really fancy devices. I'm not advocating the use of a light gate, but the light gate is the first bioweight support system, and it's, it's burdensome. It, it's, it's not very easy to manage, but what we do is we strap people in and we walk them down the hallway. And there are devices like the Riften Tram that actually do that as well. Uh, things that are cheaper that are that can be valuable to facilitating improvements in walking. Those are things that the you put that in the the annual budget for your rehab facility, which is they're not that costly, particularly as compared to a a vibration table or a robot that doesn't seem to do as much. You know, the exercise, the high intensity exercise, is it's relatively cheap as compared to these other things that don't seem to work. And that section's giving information to the clinicians on how to get that process going, which I think yeah. was in the CPG really when I first read it. I mostly also looked at the action statement. So that's, I think, an important section for people to be looking at. Yeah, I think, I think it's, there's not a lot of space dedicated to that. We don't want to burden people with too, reading too much. But the KT task force, is working jointly with us and they they're going to provide you really good resources things equipment and processes to utilize great there are specific details about the literature that was reviewed in terms of heart rate reserve goals and modalities to use how would you suggest a clinician trying to implement this action statement sift through this information to pick between treadmill or overground training heart rate goals session time and duration of weeks well so that's a great question, and there's not a set answer. I, could, I would say globally, if you want to walk, the two strategies that are recommended are high-intensity training and virtual reality, walking. They're both walking, though, walk. And so virtual reality isn't available too much, but if you have the opportunity, great. High-intensity walking, you can do that anywhere. So all you need is a heart rate monitor, check blood pressure vitals, make sure they're safe, and just get them up and start moving. As far as how much, well, this is outside of the CPG, but not so much an arm, but in legs, more seems to be better. And more may not be more sessions because you just may not have that ability to control sessions or frequency, but you have the ability to control what you do in a session. So if you want more walking within a session, you need to focus on walking. What therapists sometimes think is like, oh, you know what, I'm just going to vary it up. I can do more as a therapist. I can work on balance. I can, I can work on strength. It's like, well, you could, but that actually minimizes the time that you walk and it actually doesn't appear to be as effective as we really thought. 
you have this pie chart of time and you really want to put most of your effort into the walking practice. And then the other thing is like, even if you do balance and even if you do strengthening, sometimes that doesn't carry over to a balance or strengthening task so much. Sometimes it does. But what we do, we see when we have walking, we actually carries over. You get improved balance and it seems like you have improved strength to do a task. So targeting their impairments in the context of walking may be helpful. So let's say a guy has a real balance problems and I have him walking on a treadmill holding on for dear life. Well, he's really not challenging his balance. So why don't I have him just let go and see what I can do? So now he's practicing his um, balance while he's walking, and I may like throw something on the treadmill, make him step over. Well, if he trips and falls, there's a harness on him, so he doesn't really land. And landing's your problem, not falling. Challenging these other impairments in the context of walking to maximize the practice of walking and get their high intensity. Doing all that is not trivial. That does not happen overnight. It takes a lot of concerted effort, and there are resources available that will help you both through the ANPT and other organizations. Got it. So at this time, there's not really anything specific. Like you should be doing treadmill training in this situation, or you should be doing overground training. This is a specific goal, more of just use your clinical judgment and try to start implementing it. No, no you want to get a heart rate. You want to get to eight, 70% okay. heart rate reserves. You want to get to that heart rate. You want to maximize steps. If you are early post-stroke, and this is outside the CPG, if you're early post-stroke, then it seems like treadmill is actually better than overground, and that probably is just related to convenience, because if you're subacute non-ambulatory, it's just hard to move, right? So yeah. that's data from Dean 2010 and Ada 2010 down in Australia. And then if you're later post-stroke and you're walking already, then it looks like overground may be more specific. So Stephanie Coombs Miller did a study about overground versus treadmill, and, and overground was better in that situation. But for the most part, it doesn't really matter overground or treadmill. You get more practice on the treadmill, you have more specific. And then again, outside of the CBG, if you think about you know a treadmill, no one lives on a treadmill, so, so don't stay there. And if you think about overground, the hospital floor you have and the environment of the hospital, that's not real. That doesn't really exist in the real world. You know, so go out to the real world, you know, curbs, grass, uneven surfaces, ramps. That they struggle with that. But you have an opportunity to practice that if you're going outside and doing these things and, and focusing on getting steps and achieving a high heart rate. It just takes a lot of concerted effort and problem solving on how am I gonna do this safely. Mm -hmm. There is discussion about interval training versus treadmill training, as you kind mm -hmm. of touched upon before. How do you suggest clinicians trying to implement this action statement in the clinic sort through this and pick and choose what to execute in their clinic? The literature in the CPG doesn't actually have too many interval trainings except for one that is explicit for interval training. And so they have bursts of activity at a high level and then either resting or slower walking bursts. What you don't know or see in here is that um, some of these articles, included and not included, actually do a similar thing. They just don't have a specific zone they're going to try to target. And so just getting up and moving and doing anything is a good start. If you get to a high-level patient who can do bursts of activity, you know, maybe their heart rate gets to the top of the range, so 85% of predicted max, and it starts getting over. Well, maybe it's good to just slow down, and then when they start getting a little bit too low, bump them back up again. You've just done interval training. Mm 
right? To get the variability of patient care in inpatient or outpatient as compared to the trial is somewhat times all over the road. So instead of saying do this protocol, like here are the important parts, here are the key ingredients and do that. So those are intensity, type of a task you do. Do those things that are important, i.e. walk and walk fast and measure heart rate. It doesn't matter how okay, for a clinical cool. implementation. Okay. All right, I think that's all the questions we have for now. Do you have anything you want to add on this topic? I just, thanks for uh, the opportunity. Appreciate it. Thank you. Listeners, don't forget to join us next time as we interview a member of the Knowledge Translation Task Force for implementation engagement. So long until next time.